0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Welcome to Episode 292 of Forgotten Classics. I'm Julie, and we are getting ready to begin a Robert Louis Stevenson novella that very few people seem to have heard of. First, though, a podcast highlight. This podcast is one that foodies have probably heard of. But if you're not as into food as other people, it might have slipped by. It is called gastropod. The way they describe it, gastropod looks at food through the lens of science and history. Each episode, we look at the hidden history and surprising science behind a different food and or farming related topic. From aquaculture to ancient feasts, from cutlery to chili peppers, and from microbes to Malbec. And along the way, what they do is they interview experts, visit labs, fields, archaeological digs, and the two co-hosts, the co-hosts, Cynthia and Nicola, both have a history of working in food and journalism and science and research and all that sort of thing. But what they have that's more important is a genuine zest for the subject and a good chemistry, a good rapport. So you enjoy hearing them talk to each other. Now, that's their description. My description is Radiolab for foodies. You want to know how sound affects what you eat? (laughs) Well, listen to them when they pour different temperatures of water into a glass and marvel, as I did, at the way that you can tell if it's cold or warm. I never really thought about the fact that I could do that. Crazy. Crazy. Or their episode about Chinese food in America, where they used the documentary, which I mean to see, but haven't seen yet, of, um, I think it's called Looking for General Tso. You know, there's General Tso's chicken. Well, that is what guides them through the whole look at Chinese food in America. And a lot of these things I already have a pretty good grasp of because I've been reading about food stuff for so long, just you know, because I'm interested, but they always come up with some interesting new tidbit or a way to look at something I hadn't thought about. So it's definitely fun. Give it a try. All right. Robert Louis Stevenson, a mystery, the pavilion on the links. And if you're like me, this makes you think of some golf links, with a nice little pavilion, you know, kind of an open air gazebo sort of thing sitting in the middle of it, where you can have lemonade and sandwiches on a hot day. Well, in true Scottish form, and Stevenson was Scottish, the word lynx actually means sand that has had enough stuff growing in it that it's not going to shift around a lot. So it's kind of becoming it's the process of becoming part of the land itself but it's still really hard to run on and it's always near the ocean of course because it's from a beach and a pavilion in this case means it's not the manor house it's not grand but it's certainly a substantial house because it's the place where you know the lord of the manor would go to slum it to get away into a smaller dwelling so that's what this is talking about this story is one that in Michael Durda's On Conan Doyle, which is a wonderful, very short book about, of course, Arthur Conan Doyle and all his writing, Doyle called this story maybe the perfect detective story. I hate to disagree. It's not perfect, but what it is is fun. It's definitely of the time period. And as you listen, I want you to think about the relationship between the two men. For some reason, I just love it. It's so real to me. It just cracks me up. Anyway, something very, very different from Robert Louis Stevenson. It's not Kidnapped, one of my favorites. It's not Treasure Island, eh, not a favorite, although it did have pirates, so that's got something to say for it. This is a mystery and an adventure story. This has oh gosh, nine or ten chapters, but some of them are fairly short, so we'll probably do it in about three, maybe four episodes. So this is just the beginning. Dive in. The Pavilion on the Links by Robert Louis Stevenson. One. I was a great solitary when I was young. I made it my pride to keep aloof and suffice for my own entertainment, and I may say that I had neither friends nor acquaintances until I met that friend who became my wife and the mother of my children. With one man only was I on private terms. This was R. Northmore, Esquire of Graydon Easter in Scotland. We had met at college, and though there was not much liking between us, nor even much intimacy, we were so nearly of a humor that we could associate with ease to both. Misanthropes, we believed ourselves to be, but I have thought since that we were only sulky fellows. It was scarcely a companionship, but a coexistence in unsociability. Northmore's exceptional violence of temper made it no easy affair for him to keep the peace with anyone but me and as he respected my silent ways, and let me come and go as I pleased, I could tolerate his presence without concern. I think we called each other friends. When Northmore took his degree, and I decided to leave the university without one, he invited me on a long visit to Graydon Easter, and it was thus that I first became acquainted with the scene of my adventures. The mansion-house of Graydon stood in a bleak stretch of country some three miles from the shore of the German Ocean. It was as large as a barrack, and as it had been built of a soft stone, liable to consume in the eager air of the seaside, it was damp and drafty within, and half ruinous without. It was impossible for two young men to lodge with comfort in such a dwelling. But there stood in the northern part of the estate, in a wilderness of links and blowing sand-hills and between a plantation and the sea a small pavilion or belvedere of modern design which was exactly suited to our wants and in this hermitage speaking little reading much and rarely associating except at meals northmore and i spent four tempestuous winter months i might have stayed longer But one March night there sprung up between us a dispute which rendered my departure necessary. Northmore spoke hotly, I remember, and I suppose I must have made some tart rejoinder. He leaped from his chair and grappled me. I had to fight, without exaggeration, for my life, and it was only with great effort that I mastered him, for he was near as strong in body as myself and seemed filled with the devil.' The next morning we met on our usual terms, but I judged it more delicate to withdraw, nor did he attempt to dissuade me. It was nine years before I revisited the neighborhood. I traveled at that time with a tilt-cart, a tent, and a cooking-stove, tramping all day beside the wagon, and at night, whenever it was possible, gypsying in a cove of the hills or by the side of a wood— I believe I visited in this manner most of the wild and desolate regions both in England and Scotland, and as I had neither friends nor relations I was troubled with no correspondence and had nothing in the nature of headquarters unless it was the office of my solicitors from whom I drew my income twice a year. It was a life in which I delighted, and I fully thought to have grown old upon the march and at last died in a ditch. It was my whole business to find desolate corners where I could camp without the fear of interruption, and hence, being in another part of the same shire, I bethought me suddenly of the pavilion on the links. No thoroughfare passed within three miles of it. The nearest town, and that was but a fisher village, was at a distance of six or seven. For ten miles of length, and from a depth varying from three miles to half a mile, this belt of barren country lay along the sea. The beach, which was the natural approach, was full of quicksands. Indeed, I may say there is hardly a better place of concealment in the United Kingdom. I determined to pass a week in the sea-wood of Graydon Easter, and making a long stage reached it about sundown on a wild September day. The country, I have said, was mixed sandhill and lynx, "'Lynx being a Scottish name for sand which has ceased drifting "'and become more or less solidly covered with turf. "'The pavilion stood on an even space. "'A little behind it the wood began in a hedge of elders "'huddled together by the wind. "'In front a few tumbled sand-hills stood between it and the sea. "'An outcropping of rock had formed a bastion for the sand, "'so that there was here a promontory in the coastline "'between two shallow bays,' and just beyond the tides the rock again cropped out and formed an islet of small dimensions but strikingly designed. The quicksands were of great extent at low water and had an infamous reputation in the country. Close inshore, between the islet and the promontory, it was said they would swallow a man in four minutes and a half, but there may have been little ground for this precision. The district was alive with rabbits and haunted by gulls, which made a continual piping about the pavilion. On summer days the outlook was bright and even gladsome, but at sundown in September, with a high wind and a heavy surf rolling in close along the links, this place told of nothing but dead mariners and sea disaster. A ship beating to windward on the horizon, and a huge truncheon of wreck, half buried in the sands at my feet, completed the innuendo of the scene. The pavilion, it had been built by the last proprietor, Northmore's uncle, a silly and a prodigal virtuoso, presented little signs of age. It was two stories in height, Italian in design, surrounded by a patch of garden in which nothing had prospered but a few coarse flowers, and looked, with its shuttered windows, not like a house that had been deserted, but like one that had never been tenanted by man. Northmore was plainly from home, whether, as usual, sulking in the cabin of his yacht, or in one of his fitful and extravagant appearances in the world of society, I had, of course, no means of guessing. The place had an air of solitude that daunted even a solitary like myself. The wind cried in the chimneys with a strange and wailing note, and it was with a sense of escape, as if I were going indoors, that I turned away and, driving my cart before me, entered the skirts of the woods. The sea-wood of Graydon had been planted to shelter the cultivated fields behind, and check the encroachments of the blowing sand. As you advanced into it from coastward, elders were succeeded by other hardy shrubs, but the timber was all stunted and bushy. It led a life of conflict. The trees were accustomed to swing there all night long in fierce winter tempests, and even in early spring the leaves were already flying, and autumn was beginning in this exposed plantation. Inland the ground rose into a little hill, which, along with the islet, served as a sailing mark for seamen. When the hill was open of the islet to the north, Vessels must bear well to the eastward to clear Graydon Ness and the Graydon Bullers. In the lower ground, a streamlet ran among the trees, and, being dammed with dead leaves and clay of its own carrying, spread out here and there, and lay in stagnant pools. One or two ruined cottages were dotted about the wood, and, according to Northmore, these were ecclesiastical foundations and in their time had sheltered pious hermits. I found a den, or small hollow, where there was a spring of pure water, and there, clearing away the brambles, I pitched the tent and made a fire to cook my supper. My horse I picketed farther in the wood, where there was a patch of sward. The banks of the den not only concealed the light of my fire, but sheltered me from the wind which was cold as well as high. The life I was leading made me both hardy and frugal. I never drank but water, and rarely ate anything more costly than oatmeal, and I required so little sleep, that although I rose with the peep of day, I would often lie long awake in the dark or starry watches of the night. Thus in gradency Wood, although I fell thankfully asleep by eight in the evening, I was awake again before eleven, with a full possession of my faculties, and no sense of drowsiness or fatigue. I rose and sat by the fire, watching the trees and clouds tumultuously tossing and fleeing overhead, and hearkening to the wind and the rollers along the shore, till at length, growing weary of inaction, I quitted the den and strolled toward the borders of the wood. A young moon, buried in mist, gave a faint illumination to my steps, and the light grew brighter as I walked forth into the links. At the same moment, the wind, smelling salt of the open ocean and carrying particles of sand, struck me with its full force, so that I had to bow my head. When I raised it again to look about me, I was aware of a light in the pavilion. It was not stationary, but passed from one window to another, as though someone were reviewing the different apartments with a lamp or candle. I watched it for some seconds in great surprise. When I had arrived in the afternoon the house had been plainly deserted. Now it was as plainly occupied. It was my first idea that a gang of thieves might have broken in and to be now ransacking Northmore's cupboards, which were many, and not ill-supplied. But what should bring thieves at Graydon Easter? And again all the shutters had been thrown open, and it would have been more in the character of such gentry to close them. I dismissed the notion, and fell back upon another. Northmore himself must have arrived, and was now airing and inspecting the pavilion. I have said that there was no real affection between this man and me, but, had I loved him like a brother, I was then so much more in love with solitude that I should none the less have shunned his company. As it was, I turned and ran for it, and it was with genuine satisfaction that I found myself safely back beside the fire. I had escaped an acquaintance. I should have one more night in comfort. In the morning I might either slip away before Northmore was abroad, or pay him as short a visit as I chose. But when morning came, I thought the situation so diverting that I forgot my shyness. Northmore was at my mercy.' I arranged a good practical jest, though I knew well that my neighbor was not the man to jest with in security, (laughs) and, chuckling beforehand over its success, took my place among the elders at the edge of the wood, whence I could command the door of the pavilion. The shutters were all once more closed, which I remember thinking odd, and the house, with its white walls and green Venetians, looked spruce and habitable in the morning light hour after hour passed, and still no sign of Northmore. I knew him for a sluggard in the morning, but as it drew on toward noon I lost my patience. To say the truth, I had promised myself to break my fast in the pavilion, and hunger began to prick me sharply. It was a pity to let the opportunity go by without some cause for mirth, but the grosser appetite prevailed, and I relinquished my jest with regret and sallied from the wood. The appearance of the house affected me as I drew near with disquietude. It seemed unchanged since last evening, and I had expected it, I scarce knew why, to wear some external signs of habitation. But no. The windows were all closely shuttered, the chimneys breathed no smoke, and the front door itself was closely padlocked. Northmore, therefore, had entered by the back. This was the natural, and indeed the necessary, conclusion, and you may judge of my surprise when, on turning the house, I found the back door similarly secured. My mind at once reverted to the original theory of thieves, and I blamed myself sharply for my last night's inaction. I examined all the windows on the lower story, but none of them had been tampered with. I tried the padlocks, but they were both secure. It thus became a problem how the thieves, if thieves they were, had managed to enter the house. They must have got, I reasoned, upon the roof of the outhouse, where Northmore used to keep his photographic battery, and from thence, either by the window of the study or that of my old bedroom, completed their burglarious entry. I followed what I supposed was their example, and, getting on the roof, tried the shutters of each room. Both were secure, but I was not to be beaten, and with a little force one of them flew open, grazing as it did so the back of my hand. I remember I put the wound to my mouth and stood for perhaps half a minute licking it like a dog, and mechanically gazing behind me over the waste links and the sea, and in the space of that time my eye made note of a large schooner yacht some miles to the northeast. Then I threw up the window and climbed in. I went over the house, and nothing can express my mystification. There was no sign of disorder, but on the contrary, the rooms were unusually clean and pleasant. I found fires laid, ready for lighting, three bedrooms, prepared with a luxury quite foreign to Northmore's habits, and with water in the ewers and the beds turned down, a table set for three in the dining-room, and an ample supply of cold meats game and vegetables on the pantry shelves there were guests expected that was plain but why guests when northmore hated society and above all why was the house thus stealthily prepared at the dead of night and why were the shutters closed and the doors padlocked hmm. i effaced all traces of my visit and came forth from the window feeling sobered and concerned. The schooner yacht was still in the same place, and it flashed for a moment through my mind that this might be the Red Earl bringing the owner of the pavilion and his guests, but the vessel's head was set the other way. 2. I returned to the den to cook myself a meal, of which I stood in great need, as well as to care for my horse, whom I had somewhat neglected in the morning. From time to time I went down to the edge of the wood, but there was no change in the pavilion, and not a human creature was seen all day upon the links. The schooner in the offing was the one touch of life within my range of vision." "'She, apparently with no set object, stood off and on, or lay to, hour after hour, "'but as the evening deepened, she drew steadily nearer. "'I became more convinced that she carried Northmore and his friends, "'and that they would probably come ashore after dark, "'not only because that was of a piece with the secrecy of the preparations,' but because the tide would not have flowed sufficiently before eleven to cover Graydon Flow and the other sea-quags that fortified the shore against invaders. All day the wind had been going down, and the sea along with it, but there was a return toward sunset of the heavy weather of the day before. The night set in pitch dark. The wind came off the sea in squalls like the firing of a battery of cannon— Now and then there was a flow of rain, and the surf rolled heavier with the rolling tide. I was down at my observatory among the elders when a light was run up to the masthead of the schooner, and showed she was closer in than when I had last seen her by the dying daylight. I concluded that this must be a signal to Northmore's associates on the shore, and stepping forth into the links looked around me for something in response. A small footpath ran along the margin of the wood and formed the most direct communication between the pavilion and the mansion-house, and as I cast my eyes to that side I saw a spark of light not a quarter of a mile away and rapidly approaching. From its uneven course it appeared to be the light of a lantern carried by a person who followed the windings of the path and was often staggered and taken aback by the more violent squalls. I concealed myself once more among the elders, and waited eagerly for the newcomer's advance. It proved to be a woman, and as she passed within half a rod of my ambush, I was able to recognize the features. The deaf and silent old dame who had nursed Northmore in his childhood was his associate in this underhand affair. I followed her at a little distance, taking advantage of the innumerable heights and hollows concealed by the darkness, and favored not only by the nurse's deafness, but by the uproar of the wind and surf. She entered the pavilion, and going at once to the upper story, opened and set a light in one of the windows that looked toward the sea. Immediately afterwards, the light at the schooner's masthead was run down and extinguished its purpose had been attained and those on board were sure that they were expected the old woman resumed her preparations although the other shutters remained closed i could see a glimmer going to and fro about the house and a gush of sparks from one chimney after another soon told me that the fires were being kindled Northmore and his guests i was now persuaded would come ashore as soon as there was water on the flow It was a wild night for boat service, and I felt some alarm mingle with my curiosity as I reflected on the danger of the landing. My old acquaintance, it was true, was the most eccentric of men, but the present eccentricity was both disquieting and lugubrious to consider. A variety of feelings thus led me toward the beach where I lay flat on my face in a hollow within six feet of the track that led to the pavilion. THENCE I SHOULD HAVE THE SATISFACTION OF RECOGNIZING THE ARRIVALS, AND IF THEY SHOULD PROVE TO BE ACQUAINTANCES, GREETING THEM AS SOON AS THEY LANDED. Some time BEFORE ELEVEN, WHILE THE TIDE WAS STILL DANGEROUSLY LOW, A BOAT'S LANTERN APPEARED CLOSE IN THE SHORE, AND MY ATTENTION BEING THUS AWAKENED, I COULD PERCEIVE ANOTHER STILL FAR TO SEAWARD, VIOLENTLY TOSSED AND SOMETIMES HIDDEN BY THE BILLOWS. The weather, which was getting dirtier as the night went on, and the perilous situation of the yacht upon a shore, had probably driven them to attempt a landing at the earliest possible moment. A little afterwards, four yachtsmen, carrying a very heavy chest, and guided by a fifth, with a lantern, passed close in front of me as I lay, and were admitted to the pavilion by the nurse. They returned to the beach, and passed me a third time with another chest, larger, but apparently not so heavy as the first. A third time they made the transit, and on this occasion one of the yachtsmen carried a leather portmanteau and the others a lady's trunk and carriage bag. My curiosity was sharply excited. If a woman were among the guests of Northmore, it would show a change in his habits and an apostasy from his pet theories of life well calculated to fill me with surprise. When he and I dwelt there together, the pavilion had been a temple of misogyny, and now one of the detested sex was to be installed under its roof. I remembered one or two particulars, a few notes of daintiness, and almost of coquetry which had struck me the day before, as I surveyed the preparations of the house. Their purpose was now clear, and I thought myself dull not to have perceived it from the first. While I was thus reflecting, a second lantern drew near me from the beach. It was carried by a yachtsman whom I had not yet seen, and who was conducting two other persons to the pavilion. These two persons were unquestionably the guests for whom the house was made ready, and, straining eye and ear, I set myself to watch them as they passed. One was an unusually tall man— "'in a travelling hat slouched over his eyes "'and a highland cape, "'closely buttoned and turned up "'so as to conceal his face. "'You could make out no more of him "'than that he was, as I have said, "'unusually tall, "'and walked feebly with a heavy stoop "'by his side, "'and either clinging to him "'or giving him support, "'I could not make out which, "'was a young, tall, and slender figure of a woman. "'She was extremely pale.' "'but in the light of the lantern her face was so marred by strong and changing shadows "'that she might equally well have been as ugly a sin "'or as beautiful as I afterwards found her to be. "'When they were just abreast of me, the girl made some remark "'which was drowned by the noise of the wind. "'Hush,' said her companion, "'and there was something in the tone with which the word was uttered "'that thrilled and rather shook my spirits.' It seemed to breathe from a bosom laboring under the deadliest terror. I have never heard another syllable so expressive, and I still hear it again when I am feverish at night and my mind runs upon the old times. The man turned toward the girl as he spoke, and I had a glimpse of much red beard and a nose which seemed to have been broken in youth, and his light eyes seemed shining in his face with some strong and unpleasant emotion. But these two passed on, and were admitted in their turn to the pavilion. One by one, or in groups, the seamen returned to the beach. The wind brought me the sound of a rough voice crying, "'Shove off!' Then, after a pause, another lantern drew near. It was Northmore alone. My wife and I, a man and a woman, have often agreed to wonder how a person could be at the same time so handsome and so repulsive as Northmore. He had the appearance of a finished gentleman. His face bore every mark of intelligence and courage, but you had only to look at him, even in his most amiable moment, to see that he had the temper of a slaver captain. I never knew a character that was both explosive and revengeful to the same degree. He combined the vivacity of the South, with the sustained and deadly hatreds of the North, and both traits were plainly written on his face, which was a sort of danger signal. In person he was tall, strong, and active, his hair and complexion very dark, his features handsomely designed, but spoiled by a menacing expression. At that moment he was somewhat paler than by nature. He wore a heavy frown, and his lips worked, and he looked sharply round him as he walked, like a man besieged with apprehensions. And yet I thought he had a look of triumph underlying all, as though he had already done much, and was near the end of an achievement. Partly from a scruple of delicacy, which I dare say came too late, partly from the pleasure of startling an acquaintance, "'I desired to make my acquaintance known to him without delay. "'I suddenly got to my feet and stepped forward. "'Northmore,' said I, "'I have never had so shocking a surprise in all my days. "'He leaped on me without a word. "'Something shone in his hand, and he struck for my heart with a dagger. "'At the same moment I knocked him head over heels. "'Whether it was my quickness or his own uncertainty, I know not.' but the blade only grazed my shoulder, while the hilt and his fist struck me violently on the mouth. I fled, but not far. I had often and often observed the capabilities of the sandhills for protracted ambush or stealthy advances and retreats, and not ten yards from the scuffle plumped down again upon the grass. The lantern had fallen and gone out. "'What was my astonishment to see Northmore slip at a bound into the pavilion "'and hear him bar the door behind him with a clang of iron? "'He had not pursued me. "'He had run away. "'Northmore, whom I knew for the most implacable and daring of men, "'had run away. "'I could scarce believe my reason, "'and yet in this strange business,' where all was incredible. There was nothing to make a work about an incredibility, more or less. For why was the pavilion secretly prepared? Why had Northmore landed with his guests at dead of night in half a gale of wind, and with the flow scarce covered? Why had he not sought to kill me? Had he not recognized my voice, I wondered? And above all, how had he come to have a dagger ready in his hand? A dagger, or even a sharp knife seemed out of keeping with the age in which we lived, and a gentleman landing from his yacht on the shore of his own estate, even although it was at night and with some mysterious circumstances, does not usually, as a matter of fact, walk thus prepared for deadly onslaught. The more I reflected, the further I felt at sea. I recapitulated the elements of the mystery, counting them on my fingers— the pavilion secretly prepared for guests, the guests landed at the risk of their lives, and, to the imminent peril of the yacht, the guests, or at least one of them, in undisguised and seemingly causeless terror, Northmore with a naked weapon, Northmore stabbing his most intimate acquaintance at a word, last and not least strange, Northmore fleeing from the man whom he sought to murder, and barricading himself like a hunted creature behind the door of the pavilion. Here were at least six separate causes for extreme surprise, each part in parcel with the others, and forming altogether one consistent story. I felt almost ashamed to believe my own senses as i stood thus transfixed with wonder i began to grow painfully conscious of the injuries i had received in the scuffle sculped round among the sand-hills and by a devious path regained the shelter of the wood on the way the old nurse passed again within several yards of me still carrying her lantern on the return journey to the mansion house of Graydon, this made a seventh suspicious feature in the case Northmore and his guests, it appeared, were to cook and do the cleaning for themselves, while the old woman continued to inhabit the big empty barrack among the policies. There must surely be great cause for secrecy, when so many inconveniences were confronted to preserve it. So thinking, I made my way to the den. For greater security, I trod out the embers of the fire, and lighted my lantern to examine the wound upon my shoulder. It was a trifling hurt, although it bled somewhat freely, and I dressed it as well as I could, for its position made it difficult to reach, with some rag and cold water from the spring. While I was thus busied, I mentally declared war against Northmore and his mystery. I am not an angry man by nature, and I believe there was more curiosity than resentment in my heart, but war I certainly declared, and by way of preparation I got out my revolver, and, having drawn the charges, cleaned and reloaded it with scrupulous care. Next I became preoccupied about my horse. It might break loose or fall to neighing, and so betray my camp in the sea wood. I determined to rid myself of its neighborhood, and long before dawn I was leading it over the links in the direction of the Fisher Village. 3. For two days I skulked around the pavilion, profiting by the uneven surface of the links. I became an adept in the necessary tactics. These low hillocks and shallow dells, running one into another, became a kind of cloak of darkness for my enthralling, but perhaps dishonorable, pursuit. Yet in spite of this advantage I could learn but little of Northmore or his guests. Fresh provisions were brought under cover of darkness by the old woman from the mansion-house. Northmore and the young lady, sometimes together, but more often singly, would walk for an hour or two at a time on the beach beside the quicksand. I could not but conclude that this promenade was chosen with an eye to secrecy, for the spot was open only to seaward, but it suited me not less excellently— The highest and most accidented of the sand-hills immediately adjoined, and from these, lying flat in a hollow, I could overlook Northmore or the young lady as they walked. The tall man seemed to have disappeared. Not only did he never cross the threshold, but he never so much as showed face at a window, or at least not so far as I could see, for I dared not creep forward beyond a certain distance in the day, since the upper floors commanded the bottoms of the links and at night, when I could venture further, the lower windows were barricaded as if to stand a siege. Sometimes I thought the tall man must be confined to bed, for I remembered the feebleness of his gait, and sometimes I thought he must have gone clear away, and that Northmore and the young lady remained alone together in the pavilion. The idea, even then, displeased me. Whether or not this pair were man and wife, I had seen abundant reason to doubt the friendliness of their relation. Although I could hear nothing of what they said, and rarely so much as glean a decided expression on the face of either, there was a distance, almost a stiffness, in their bearing, which showed them to be either unfamiliar or at enmity. The girl walked faster when she was with Northmore than when she was alone, and I conceived that any inclination between a man and a woman would rather delay than accelerate the step. Moreover, she kept a good yard free from him and trailed her umbrella as if it were a barrier on the side between them. Northmore kept sidling closer. And as the girl retired from his advance, their course lay at a sort of diagonal across the beach, and would have landed them in the surf had it been long enough continued. But when this was imminent, the girl would unostentatiously change sides and put Northmore between her and the sea. I watched these manoeuvres for my part, with high enjoyment and approval, and chuckled to myself at every move. On the morning of the third day she walked alone for some time and I perceived, to my great concern, that she was more than once in tears. You will see that my heart was already interested more than I supposed. She had a firm yet airy motion of the body, and carried her head with unimaginable grace. Every step was a thing to look at, and she seemed in my eyes to breathe sweetness and distinction. The day was so agreeable, being calm and sunshiny with a tranquil sea, and yet with a healthful piquancy and vigor in the air, that contrary to custom, she was tempted for the second time to walk. On this occasion she was accompanied by Northmore, and they had been but a short while on the beach when I saw him take forcible possession of her hand. She struggled, and uttered a cry that was almost a scream. I sprang to my feet, unmindful of my strange position, but ere i had taken a step i saw northmore bareheaded and bowing very low as if to apologise and dropped again at once into my ambush a few words were interchanged and then with another bow he left the beach to return to the pavilion he passed not far from me and i could see him flushed and lowering and cutting savagely with his cane among the grass "'It was not without satisfaction "'that I recognized my own handiwork "'in a great cut under his right eye "'and a considerable discoloration round the socket. "'For a time the girl remained where he had left her, "'looking out past the islet and over the bright sea. "'Then, with a start as one who throws off preoccupation "'and puts energy again upon its mettle, "'she broke into a rapid and decisive walk.' She also was much incensed by what had passed. She had forgotten where she was, and I beheld her walk straight into the borders of the quicksand, where it is most abrupt and dangerous. Two or three steps further, and her life would have been in serious jeopardy, when I slid down the face of the sand-hill, which is there precipitous, and running halfway forward, called to her to stop. She did so, and turned round. There was not a trace of fear in her behavior, and she marched directly up to me like a queen. I was barefoot and clad like a common sailor except for an Egyptian scarf round my waist, and she probably took me at first for someone from the fisher village straying after bait. As for her, when I thus saw her face to face, her eyes set steadily and imperiously upon mine, I was filled with admiration and astonishment." and thought her even more beautiful than I had looked to find her. Nor could I think enough of any one who, acting with so much boldness, yet preserved a maidenly air that was both quaint and engaging. For my wife kept an old-fashioned precision of manner through all her admirable life, an excellent thing in a woman, since it sets another value on her sweet familiarities. "'What does this mean?' she asked. "'You were walking.' "'I told her, directly into Graden flow. "'You do not belong to these parts,' she said again. "'You speak like an educated man.' "'I believe I have a right to that name,' said I, "'although in this disguise. "'But her woman's eye had already detected the sash. "'Oh,' she said, "'your sash betrays you.' "'You have said the word betray?' "'I resumed.' "'May I ask you not to betray me? "'I was obliged to disclose myself in your interest, "'but if Northmore learned my presence, "'it might be worse than disagreeable for me.' "'Do you know?' she asked. "'To whom you are speaking?' "'Not to Mr. Northmore's wife,' I asked by way of answer. "'She shook her head. "'All this while she was studying my face "'with an embarrassing intentness.' Then she broke out. "'You have an honest face. Be honest like your face, sir, and tell me what you want and what you are afraid of. Do you think I could hurt you? I believe you have far more power to injure me. And yet you do not look unkind. What do you mean, you a gentleman, by skulking like a spy about this desolate place? Tell me,' she said, "'who is it you hate?' "'I hate no one.' "'I answered, and I fear no one face to face. "'My name is Cassilis Frank Cassilis. "'I lead the life of a vagabond for my own good pleasure. "'I am one of Northmore's oldest friends, "'and three nights ago, when I addressed him on these links, "'he stabbed me in the shoulder with a knife. "'It was you,' she said. "'Why he did so,' I continued, disregarding the interruption, "'as more than I can guess.' and more than I care to know. I have not many friends, nor am I very susceptible to friendship, but no man shall drive me from a place by terror. I had camped in the Graydon Sea Wood ere he came. I camp in it still. If you think I mean harm to you or yours, madam, the remedy is in your hand. Tell him that my camp is in the Hemlock Den, and to-night he can stab me in safety while I sleep. With this I doffed my cap to her, and scrambled up once more among the sand-hills. I do not know why, but I felt a prodigious sense of injustice, and felt like a hero and a martyr. Well, as a matter of fact, I had not a word to say in my defense, nor so much as one plausible reason to offer for my conduct. I had stayed at Graydon out of a curiosity natural enough, but undignified. And though there was another motive growing in along with the first, it was not one which, at that period, I could have properly explained to the lady of my heart. Certainly that night I thought of no one else, and though her whole conduct and position seemed suspicious, I could not find it in my heart to entertain a doubt of her integrity. I could have staked my life that she was clear of blame, and, though all was dark at the present, that the explanation of the mystery would show her part in these events to be both right and needful. It was true, let me cudgel my imagination as I pleased, that I could invent no theory of her relations to Northmore, but I felt none the less sure of my conclusion, as it was founded on instinct in place of reason, and, as I may say, "'went to sleep that night with the thought of her under my pillow. "'Next day she came out about the same hour alone, "'and as soon as the sand-hills concealed her from the pavilion, "'drew nearer to the edge and called me by name in guarded tones. "'I was astonished to observe that she was deadly pale "'and seemingly under the influence of strong emotion. "'Mr. Kassilis!' she cried. "'Mr. Kassilis!' I appeared at once and leaped down upon the beach. A remarkable air of relief overspread her countenance as soon as she saw me. "'Oh!' she cried with a hoarse sound, like one whose bosom has been lightened of a weight. And then, "'Thank God you are still safe,' she added. "'I knew if you were, you would be here.' "'Was this not strange?' So swiftly and wisely does nature prepare our hearts for these great lifelong intimacies that both my wife and I had been given a presentiment on this the second day of our acquaintance. I had even then hoped that she would seek me. She had felt sure that she would find me. Do not, she went on swiftly, do not stay in this place— Promise me that you sleep no longer in that wood. You do not know how I suffer. All last night I could not sleep for thinking of your peril.' "'Peril?' I repeated. "'Peril from whom? From Northmore?' "'Not so,' she said. "'Did you think I would tell him after what you said?' "'Not from Northmore,' I repeated. "'Then how? From whom? I see none to be afraid of.' "'You must not ask me.' Was her reply, for I am not free to tell you. Only believe me and go hence. Believe me and go away quickly, quickly for your life. An appeal to his alarm is never a good plan to rid oneself of a spirited young man. My obstinacy was but increased by what she said, and I made it a point of honour to remain, and her solicitude for my safety still more confirmed me in the resolve. "'You must not think me inquisitive, madam,' I replied. "'But if Graydon is so dangerous a place, you yourself, perhaps, remain here at some risk.' She only looked at me reproachfully. "'You and your father,' I resumed, but she interrupted me almost with a gasp. "'My father! How do you know that?' she cried. "'I saw you together when you landed,' was my answer and I do not know why, but it seemed satisfactory to both of us, as indeed it was truth. But, I continued, you need have no fear from me. I see you have some reason to be secret, and you may believe me. Your secret is as safe with me as if I were in graden flow. I have scarce spoken to anyone for years. My horse is my only companion, and even he, poor beast, is not beside me. You see, then— "'You may count on me for silence. "'So tell me the truth, my dear young lady. "'Are you not in danger?' "'Mr. Northmore says you are an honorable man,' she returned, "'and I believe it when I see you. "'I will tell you so much. "'You are right. "'We are in dreadful, dreadful danger, "'and you share it by remaining where you are.' "'Ah,' said I, "'you have heard of me from Northmore, "'and he gives me a good character?' "'I asked him about you last night,' was her reply. "'I pretended,' she hesitated. Hmm, "'I pretended to have met you long ago and spoken to you of him. "'It was not true, but I could not help myself without betraying you, "'and you had put me in a difficulty. "'He praised you highly.' "'And you may permit me one question? "'Does this danger come from Northmore?' I asked. "'From Mr. Northmore?' she cried. "'Oh, no, he stays with us to share it.' Well, you propose that I should run away,' I said. "'You do not rate me very high.' "'Why should you stay?' she asked. "'You are no friend of ours.' "'I know not what came over me, "'for I had not been conscious of a similar weakness since I was a child.' but I was so mortified by this retort that my eyes pricked and filled with tears as I continued to gaze upon her face. No, no, she said in a changed voice. I did not mean the words unkindly. It was I who offended, I said, and I held out my hand with a look of appeal that somehow touched her, for she gave me hers at once, and even eagerly. I held it for a while in mine. And gazed into her eyes. It was she who first tore her hand away, and forgetting all about her request and the promise she had sought to extort, ran at the top of her speed and without turning till she was out of sight. And then I knew that I loved her, and thought in my glad heart that she, she herself, was not indifferent to my suit. Many a time she has denied it in after days, but it was with a smiling and not a serious denial. For my part, I am sure our hands would not have lain so closely in each other if she had not begun to melt to me already. And when all is said, it is no great contention, since, by her own avowal, she began to love me on the morrow. And yet, on the morrow, very little took place. She came and called me down as on the day before, upbraided me for lingering at Graydon, and when she found out I was still obdurate, began to ask me more particularly as to my arrival. I told her by what series of accidents I had come to witness their disembarkation, and how I had determined to remain, partly from the interest which had been awakened in me by Northmore's guests, and partly because of his own murderous attack. As to the former, I fear I was disingenuous, and led her to regard herself as having been an attraction to me from the first moment that I saw her on the links. It relieves my heart to make this confession, even now, when my wife is with God, and already knows all things, and the honesty of my purpose even in this, for while she lived, although it often pricked my conscience, I never had the hardihood to undeceive her." even a little secret, in such a married life as ours, is like the rose-leaf which kept the princess from her sleep. From this the talk branched into other subjects, and I told her much about my lonely and wandering existence, she, for her part, giving ear and saying little. Although we spoke very naturally and latterly on topics that might seem indifferent, we were both sweetly agitated— Too soon it was time for her to go, and we separated, as if by mutual consent, without shaking hands, for both knew that between us it was no idle ceremony. The next, and that was the fourth day of our acquaintance, we met in the same spot, but early in the morning, with much familiarity and yet much timidity on each side. While she had once more spoken about my danger— and that, I understood, was her excuse for coming. I, who had prepared a great deal of talk during the night, began to tell her how highly I valued her kind interest, and how no one had ever cared to hear about my life, nor had I ever cared to relate it, before yesterday. Suddenly she interrupted me, saying with vehemence, And yet, if you knew who I was, you would not so much as speak to me. I told her such a thought was madness, and little as we had met I counted her already a dear friend. But my protestations seemed only to make her more desperate. "'My father is in hiding!' she cried. "'My dear,' I said, forgetting for the first time to add young lady, "'what do I care? If I were in hiding twenty times over, would it make one thought of changing you?' "'Ah, but the cause!' she cried." "'The cause! It is!' she faltered for a second. "'It is disgraceful to us!'